Howdy folks, it's Double J back here, your host of the Operation GCD podcast. It's at this point in time, folks of the interwebs, where I normally prescribe a shenanigan-infused journey into the mind of this particular garbage can dude. However, not today, folks. Today, we discuss a topic of a much more serious nature, one that delves into the areas of quote-unquote true crime, albeit I'm not exactly certain what fake crime would be, but be it as it may, it is the topic of today's discussion. Granted, in large part, I do not understand the existence of the true crime community as a whole, and uh, it often reminds me of something my grandmother Vance, the lady who raised me, once educated me at at a young age, back when I used to watch the show Murder, She Wrote. Now, my grandmother wasn't an educated lady, not no fancy education, that is. She was an Appalachian woman, hailing from Pike County, Kentucky, and later Logan County, West Virginia. And again, not a fancy education, but, however, her opinion on such matters uh, of murder and the perpetration of murder in our media, she seemed to have uh, an accurate understanding of these matters. As I alluded to before, she educated me at a young age by turning off the television on me and uh, telling me that those programs were going to rot my mind. Well, damn it, I believe she was indeed correct. Because there seems to be a direct correlation between the media's grandizing nature of murder and crime generally and the actual real-world perpetration of such murders and crime. So I will definitely have to give her credit for that. And thus, crime and murder is not something I enjoy discussing. But today here, I'm sharing with you folks of the interwebs a recent guest appearance I made on the Forum Podcast. Now, if you folks of the interwebs are unfamiliar with the Forum Podcast and its host, Steven Snyder, a.k.a. Recluse, I highly recommend you look at it, give it a listen. Host Steven Snyder of the Forum Podcast produces some superb content in the topics relative to parapolitics and other such matters of high weirdness. And not only have I made numerous recent guest appearances on the Farm Podcast, I recently also became a big fan of the show. And here in today's episode, host Steven Snyder and myself, uh, Double J here, discuss the recent tragic quadruple homicide that occurred on the campus of the University of Idaho back on November 13th, 2022, where four young college students were murdered inside their home on the early morning hours of November 13th, in this small, sleepy town of Moscow, Idaho. In addition, we also discuss the death of another Greek Row college student that was actually friends with the quadruple homicide victims, or at least knew each other socially. And that student's death occurred in May of 2022 in what I allege to be a murder under the guise of a copycat murder, smiley face killer style. And folks of the interwebs, let me just clarify. When I say Greek row or Greek students, I'm not referring to any folks from a Mediterranean origin or ancestry, but rather the Greek students or Greek row of a college campus, that being those members of a sorority or a fraternity, where the victims in this tragic quadruple homicide were members of both forms of the college campus Greek life. And as I alluded to before, Moscow, Idaho is a sleepy college town, but what I'm really referring to when I say sleepy I'm referring to the local authorities of the town as those local authorities in Moscow, Idaho must be operating in a state of slumber. A state of slumber that has 
these same local authorities apparently advocating their lawfully mandated duties and responsibilities to protect and serve the people of Moscow, Idaho. Now, by all appearances, these same local authorities of Moscow, Idaho are clearly perpetrating a massive fraud. A massive fraud on the people, once again, that they're duly sworn to protect and serve, and a massive fraud against the suspect that has been arrested and charged with the murders of the four college students. So here in today's podcast episode, myself and the farm podcast host, Mr. Steven Snyder, we analyze and dissect the socio-political environment in which these heinous murders transpired, as well as obliterating the official narrative perpetrated by these local authorities in their own investigation as per their own affidavits filed with the court system for both the search warrants and the arrests of their suspect, Brian Koberger. Additionally, we discuss the extenuating parapolitical circumstances surrounding this quadruple homicide in Moscow, Idaho, where myself, uh, Double J here, attempts to apply the concepts of parapolitical quote-unquote conspiracy theories of the famous quote-unquote conspiracy theorist, May Brussel. Now, folks of the interwebs, if you're unfamiliar with the work of May Brussel, she hosted a terrestrial radio program discussing events of a parapolitical nature beginning with the JFK assassination circa 45 years ago. In fact, it was May Brussel who was discussing the underlying machinations of the Watergate scandal of the Nixon administration months before the nomenclature Watergate scandal was even presented to the American public via the mainstream media. Now, as it seems, May Brussel was simply connecting the dots from various parapolitical news events being perpetrated by the mainstream media outlets of the early 1970s, where all May Brussel did was simply see the crossovers between these otherwise disparate parapolitical events. And she largely based that upon the people involved in those otherwise disparate parapolitical events. Essentially, seeing the, some of the same parties were involved in these national news media level events that by all other means had no other connections and certainly no connections being reported by the mainstream media. In doing so, after the Watergate scandal broke, this seems to be a concept or quote-unquote conspiracy theory that May Brussel had developed, essentially asserting that when numerous parapolitical events of a national media attention nature are being reported and appear to have no direct connections, but upon further review, these same parapolitical events may in fact be connected just beneath the surface of the American public purview by things such as, in her case, the Watergate scandal involving similar parties being involved in various otherwise disparate parapolitical scandals and events. However, in today's example, as I apply these core concepts of the May Brussel quote-unquote conspiracy theories, I discuss the geographical and temporal connections, that being time and location, between the Moscow-Idaho quadruple homicides and the recent implosion of the Democratic National Committee's money laundering cryptocurrency outfit known as FTX, where, for some bizarre reason, the Bahama-based FTX cryptocurrency exchange had purchased a small bank in a tiny town just outside Moscow, Idaho. Oh, and it gets better, folks, of the interwebs because FTX not only funded the buyout and purchase of this tiny bank, 
They also changed the name of it. A bank that is as old as the town of Moscow, Idaho, and was formerly named Farmington State Bank, named after the town in which it sits in, named Moonstone Bank. Very bizarre name for a bank, if you ask me. In fact, by all appearances, a very bizarre bank. It's actually owned, the financing came through FTX, but it's actually owned by the co-creator and co-inventor of the cartoon Inspector Gadget. And with a name like Moonstone, Lord of Mercy, who knows what's going on there? Because if you look at the, the actual facility this, that houses this bank, there's no sign on the building. And uh, instead of thinking it looks like a bank, by all appearances, it looks like some sort of rape shack. Anyhow, on the same mode of thought here with the, with the bank money laundering operations, I share my thoughts on what may indeed likely be the motive and nexus point of the tragic quadruple homicide on the University of Idaho campus back on November 13th, 2022. Now, the nexus point and motive of these homicides may in fact be something the local authorities don't even understand the definitions of those words, because it's certainly something the local authorities have failed to do to establish in their investigation whatsoever. The local authorities identified no motive and have presented zero nexus point for their alleged perpetrator, who they have in custody, and the quadruple homicide victims. So, I share my thoughts on that subject here today, and spoiler alert, it seems drug trafficking related, and this would not be the first high-profile murder case revolving around large-scale drug trafficking, if indeed this case in Idaho does revolve around that, which again, the framework for such a motive and nexus points are again topics of today's discussion. Further, large-scale drug trafficking would provide a uh, some sort of impetus, at least, for the massive propaganda machine that is being perpetrated against the suspect in the Idaho quadruple homicide, suspect Brian Koberger, where Koberger is the victim of a blatantly fake news propaganda campaign that I quite honestly have not witnessed since the O.J. Simpson trial of the mid-1990s. And much like the O.J. Simpson trial of 1995, the propaganda machine that surrounded the O.J. Simpson trial was some sort of next-level circus, with one goal in mind in that circus, and that was to convict O.J. Simpson in the minds of all Americans in the figurative court of public opinion. And Brian Koberger is victim to that same propaganda machine here today, many years later. In fact, nearly 30 years later. Thus, one must ask, what is the impetus behind this massive, massive propaganda campaign of fake news being perpetrated by the mainstream media against suspect Koberger, who again, here in America, you are indeed innocent until proven guilty. And these local authorities have a very uphill battle at trying to prove this guy guilty. Once again, a person such as myself must reasonably ask, what is the true impetus behind such a massive propaganda campaign against suspect Koberger? A propaganda campaign that has not been seen on this level since O.J. Simpson trials. Now, when I say propaganda campaign, what I'm saying here, folks of the interwebs, is the national news media has been perpetrating numerous false assertions, with their only source being quote-unquote unidentified sources. And each time these things come out, they're proven incorrect. It's one example, largely being perpetrated from one source, in fact, People Magazine, one example, People Magazine wrote an article saying the suspect had photographs of the, of the victims or one victim on his cell phone. 
I, I'm very circumspect about such reports, and here's why. Because People Magazine has produced numerous reports against suspect Koberger, all from unidentified sources, quote unquote, close to the investigation, and each one of those have been proven incorrect and flat out lies. Another example is the FBI was reported to have lost uh, suspect Koberger on, a, on his travel back to his family's home in Pennsylvania for holiday break from his teaching position as a doctoral student at Washington State University in Pullman, Washington, approximately five miles away from Moscow, Idaho, just across the state border. Well, once People Magazine produced that article, the FBI came out and said, uh, no, we didn't. So you got People Magazine saying, oh, well, the FBI was tracking him, but this guy's so crafty. This Koberger fellow's so crafty, the FBI lost him for 15 hours. And the FBI was like, uh, no, no, we didn't. And, you know, that's not the only example either. Another example where the two of the victims of the quadruple homicide worked at a local restaurant in Moscow, Idaho. And People Magazine said, oh, well, we spoke we spoke to the uh, an employee of the restaurant and, you know, police have confiscated their surveillance cameras and footage and interviewed the employees of the restaurant and suspect Koberger was stalking his victims at, you know, at their place of employment. And the owner of that restaurant came out and said, uh, uh no, he didn't. So there's a number of these type of activities. And again, it begs the question, very reasonable question, why? What is the purpose of this propaganda machine? And in addition to People Magazine, which is a print media publication, there is the News Nation. Uh, I, I assume it's a t news network. I don't, I don't know. Anyway, it seems to be mostly uh, staffed by former CNN rejects. Chris Cuomo is one of those. Another one's named is uh, Ashley Banfield. And Banfield appears to be leading the pack. She does a nightly news anchor. Again, I use the term news very loosely in this, this regard. On, they're on the channel or, or network News Nation. And uh, lo and behold, Ashley Banfield made her name on the national news platform CNN reporting on the O.J. Simpson trial and the O.J. Simpson cases. And I believe her co-worker, another anchor on the News Nation network, Chris Cuomo, I believe his credentials, or lack thereof, speak for themselves. But both news anchors have routinely hosted as experts in the commentary of the, of the Idaho quadruple homicides, figures and characters from the O.J. Simpson trial to include L.A. County Prosecutor Marsh Clark, who was the lead prosecutor on the O.J. Simpson murder case. And strangely enough, here uh, in Meme World 2023, Marsha Clark is appearing alongside as a co-expert, quote-unquote expert, on the commentary of these Idaho quadruple homicides. Clark is appearing alongside... Mr. Perjury himself from the O.J. Simpson trial, former LAPD detective Mark Furman, which that's bizarre in and of itself because Mark Furman can easily be argued is the individual who lost the case for the L.A. County Prosecutor's Office and again lead prosecutor Marsha Clark. Not only did Furman's perjury become an issue in the O.J. Simpson case, the planting of evidence and uh, clear setup of O.J. Simpson clearly was the demise or seems to have been the demise of Detective Mark Furman's career at the LAPD. Thus, it begs the question, at least to this dude's mind, what is the purpose of this massive propaganda campaign against murder suspect Brian Koberger? Might there be larger implications involved, either tangentially or directly connected to the Idaho quadruple homicides? And if you folks of the interwebs aren't uh, clear on what I'm saying by larger implications, 
um, drug trafficking, for example, would be the larger implication that I'm implying here, at least. Precisely similar to the O.J. Simpson case, where he was tried for the murder of his ex-wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, and Ron Goldman. And Goldman was a waiter at an upscale Italian restaurant in Los Angeles, a restaurant that was shut down very shortly after the murders, and its owner, a made mobster from New York City, arrested for operating a cocaine trafficking distribution operation out of that fancy Italian restaurant. And for any of you folks of the interwebs thinking, old Double J here's jumped the shark, I watched a Netflix series or two or whatever media program, and you've convinced yourself that O.J. Simpson was guilty of those murders. Well, good news. Uh, I enjoy being the bearer of bad news for you. Literally, all of the physical evidence, to include the forensic evidence in the O.J. Simpson murder trial, as well as the actual jury verdict, would prove your position wildly incorrect if you feel that O.J. Simpson committed those murders. But that is my point of the massive propaganda machine at play here, because the same massive propaganda machine, and again, some of the same characters, lead prosecutor, Mr. Perjury himself, uh, Mark Furman, are involved in the propaganda machine against Brian Koberger, the suspect in the Idaho quadruple homicide. Thus, it's easy for me to make the comparison, given the same type of propaganda machine and the same characters involved, and... The O.J. Simpson case clearly revolved around drug trafficking, so I feel like it's fairly reasonable to ask, does the Idaho quadruple homicide have some sort of tangential or direct connections to a drug trafficking operation? And one final note here on O.J. Simpson's clear innocence in the matter, and directly related to former LAPD detective Mark Furman, the now News Nation quote-unquote expert commentator on the Idaho quadruple homicide case, one key piece of evidence that was left out of the O.J. Simpson trial, courtesy of the judge denying the evidence to be entered into the trial, Mark Furman was the first responding detective to the murder scene at Nicole Brown Simpson's house. And Mark Furman violated all protocols and procedures, departed the scene of a crime, leaving it unattended. Then he drove approximately four miles to the home of O.J. Simpson, whom had already departed to Chicago earlier that night and Furman actually called LAPD dispatch from the location of O.J. Simpson's Brentwood neighborhood estate uh, circa four hours after the murders. The contents and communications between Furman and the LAPD dispatch are still unknown to this day, but the existence of such communications were barred from evidence in the trial. And one last comparative note here, folks, of the interwebs between the O.J. Simpson case and the Idaho quadruple homicides both crime scenes were cleaned up by law enforcement long before even charging a suspect in either crime. For example, the O.J. Simpson murder trial, the uh, crime scene there at Nicole Brown Simpson's house was hosed down and cleaned up within 12 hours. With the exception of the rear gate, which they needed to not clean that up because they had a later, a couple days later when O.J. Simpson returned back from Chicago, LAPD, not Furman, one of Furman's cohorts there in the LAPD uh, detective force, Detective Philip Van Adder. He felt obligated to uh, take some vials of O.J. Simpson's blood, then go to the coroner's office, get some vials of the victim's blood, and lo and behold, suddenly O.J. Simpson's blood is appearing alongside and mixed in with the victim's blood in that back gate area of the crime scene, the only area not hosed down and completely cleaned up within 12 hours. 
On that same note, the Idaho quadruple homicide case, the uh, Moscow Idaho PD police chief, Chief Fry, was giddier than a fat kid at a cake factory driving a U-Haul truck into an active crime scene on December 6th. This is allegedly by their own affidavit, seven days after, eight days after uh, suspect Koberger was identified. Mind you, never questioned, never searched, et cetera, et cetera. Um, not for at least another month. However, on December 6th, the police chief is giddier than a fat kid in a cake factory driving a U-Haul truck into an active crime scene, clearing out the house and pretending like that's normal. Well, that's an active crime scene. There you go. Once again, folks of the interwebs, these are examples of a certain sign of a corrupt cover-up. Anyhow, folks of the interwebs, please enjoy the commentary and analysis of the Idaho quadruple homicide case and other likely tangentially associated parapolitical events between myself, Double J here, and host of the Farm Podcast, Stephen Snyder, aka Recluse. Golden brown, texture like sun, lays me down with my mind. She runs throughout the night. No need to fight, never a frown with golden brown. Every time, just like the last, on her ship tied to the mast. Two distant lands takes both my hands, never a frown with golden brown. All right, JJ. Obviously, for our purposes here with this episode, it is to totally destroy the official narrative surrounding this whole thing. But before we really get going with this, Let's at least briefly address what the official narrative consists of so people kind of have some idea of the crap that the public at large is being fed if they haven't been following this case closely. So what of it, bro? Yeah, this is an interesting case, uh, for sure. I mean, it's unique in many, it's unique in many regards and, and, and very similar to some other cases and uh, more of the propaganda media campaign regards and, and the police investigatory uh, operations involved in this case versus a couple other cases, but I think it's very unique in the, in the aspect that uh, the way the the uh, whole case is kind of unfolded and it's, it began on November early morning hours of November November thirteenth of twenty twenty two when uh, allegedly the suspect in custody right now Brian Koberger in the case entered the home of an off campus home of the University of Idaho and murdered three sorority uh, girl students and then one frat guy uh, student in the home. I mean, two sorority girl students survived in the home as the, as the narrative and official story goes. And it, uh, from there, it's only been question marks and, uh, you know, anomalous activity by the, by law enforcement, a strange prop propaganda campaign across the national media. And the case has grasped the national media's attention and in, in, in the nation and international society at large, you know, because of some of these elements, the, 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 a lot of folks in the, in the public seem to seem to see a lot of the the uh, maybe not the whole totality of the events, but th they seem to identify at least individuals, circumstances, and incidents within the Idaho quadruple murder case that caused them to to scratch their head and say, "Well, that's well, that's strange," and you know, and if you look at the totality of all of the strange events. It paints a different picture than the picture that's being sold, in, you know, very 
heavily propagandized campaign across all media outlets, social media and, you know, corporate media, print media, you name it. There's been a number of, for example, People Magazine articles quoting all these national media outlets, quote, anonymous sources in regards to the framing of, this, of the suspect and, and a lot of the details and the events that, that transpired after the murders. Anonymous sources state X, Y, and Z, and X, Y, and Z proves over time, and sometimes a very short amount of time, to be just completely fictional. So, and there's been time after time, there's been incidents of that throughout since November 13th. And it's a very bizarre, very bizarre case. Now, JJ, you're closer to this case than a lot of uh, laymen out there who have been uh, investigating it. So do you want to briefly get into your day job and how you became involved with it? Sure, sure. Yeah, I uh, since my retirement from the Air Force Military Police, I've spent my time as a private detective. And a number of friends that are local to that, to that region, they're in Moscow, Idaho. I, I saw the murders in the news, you know, briefly. I, I, I pay very little attention to things that are in the, in the, in the media cycles. Um, but, I, you know, I saw it, it. It seemed strange and my initial thought was my initial my, my my same thought I have today is that this is a personal attack. If four college students, you know, get murdered allegedly in their sleep, as the official narrative goes, you know, in their house in the, in the morning, you know, early morning hours, and, no, and there's no signs of break in. Well, this sounds like a very personal attack, and that was my initial assessment, you know, and I and I didn't really think about it past that. And then a couple of weeks after the murders, around Thanksgiving, you know, one of my friends in, that, in the local region there contacted me and, and just wanted me to look at the circumstances and situation. Because as you can imagine, a small community such as that in Moscow, Idaho, or the adjacent city across the border, Pullman, Washington, they're both university towns. They both have 10, 20,000 year-long residents and, and you know, 10, 20,000 student residents. So, And this is a very rural area. You can drive in three or four hours in each direction and not hit a major city. So obviously, this, this is a crime that shocked the communities there. And, and continue to shock the communities as it as it seems so apparent that the law enforcement, at least the, the reports coming from law enforcement to the public through press releases and press conferences, they didn't have answers to anything. And in hindsight, if you compare their probable cause statement, their probable cause arrest affidavit for the suspect they have in custody versus their public statements, well, those are two different those are two different narratives and altogether. I mean, they they contradict each other left and right. Um, so you can see where the, the local community might, might get concerned there. And, and that's kind of how I was brought into. So I, I started looking at the, uh, the case and, and tracking it since, since Thanksgiving when I spoke with a friend of mine up, up in that region. And uh, everything about this case, again, from my initial analysis on about the time of the murders, you know, probably I read the probably read an article on it November 14th. So, you know, 11 days later or so, I'm. You know, I look at more details and, and, and everything that had transpired between those 11 days made absolutely no reasonable sense and, and in large part violated you know, normal standard police protocols for an investigation. I was kind of uh, hooked from, from that moment forward just tracking this case, and it's only gotten stranger and stranger. You know, the more details have come out and, you know, the more, uh, more details I've read and further analysis I've done of the whole just the environment that, that goes on there in Pullman, Washington, and, and Moscow, Idaho, just generally speaking. The relationship between the, um, the universities to those towns and the relationship between the, Greeks, the Greek uh, student populations of those universities relative to the situation as well. And it's, it, it's, it's an interesting environment. I'll leave it at that. I mean, I can, we'll obviously jump more into that later here in this discussion, but I think 
to serve as a baseline. It's it's an interesting environment, you know, with a, considering those factors. Yeah, no, it certainly is. Uh, it's really a remarkable cast of characters the community seems to have brought together, to put it mildly. So, have you ever investigated anything in Moscow, Idaho, or the surrounding region before? I'm wondering specifically if there's any links to a, a smiley face killer like deaths in that area or anything else equally mysterious. No, and that's kind of the one that. So, Moscow, Idaho has a quote unquote smiley face killer death, and it's the first one ever in Idaho. I've been tracking the smiley face killer deaths since I saw the initial report on on the news in the spring of 2008 when the you know the initial uh, detectives from NYPD and a college professor from Minnesota you know were doing a national tour of sorts because they had been hired by a number of victims families to further investigate the deaths of, of their loved ones and they had put together the smiley face killer theory and it's again it's a that in and of itself is a, a misnomer it's something that the media themselves and their at this time period had, had attributed to what the detectives were talking about. But what it is, is the, uh, you know, the drowning deaths of largely college-aged, uh, successful, bright young young men. As the uh, mode of operations goes in those deaths, the uh, victim is out drinking one night and then later found uh, in a typically a very shallow body of water, like this case in Idaho with a, with a student named uh, Hudson Lindell, which occurred in May of 2022. And that was the first one of its nature in the state of Idaho. So that, that and quite honestly, I had not really ever researched or looked up anything in regards to Moscow, Idaho, or University of Idaho until that smiley face, the alleged smiley face killer death occurred of the, of the University of Idaho student in May of 2022. So, you know, so when, it, when the murders occurred in, in November, I was like, well, that's strange. That's that same campus that had what I, what I assert would be a copycat smiley face killer death for a number of reasons, not just the, the fact that it's an outlier being the first in this whole state of Idaho, but certainly, and that's again, over the, a large volume of time, that's, we're talking over the last 15 years, that's the first death in the state of Idaho. So uh, that's one of the reasons why I, I would assert it's, it's likely a copycat. There's some more, more technical and inside baseball regions, if you will, why I've concluded that that's likely a copycat situation versus the standard crime that's committed against the quote unquote smiley face killer victims. But nonetheless, it was a frat student, uh, a young, young male, 21 years of age, died an untimely death. The police wrote it off a suicide. And it's my understanding amongst the locals there, the town, the townsfolk in that region, that, that, that death didn't sit right with the townspeople, nor did the fact that the police were kind of just set it up. We'll call it a day. And that student, who was the victim of the what I assert as the copycat smiley face uh, murder, you know, as opposed to what the police wrote it off as an accidental death and suicide? You know, the kid just the drunk kid fell in three inches of water in a creek and died, died of drowning. That happens all the time, apparently in a lot of jurisdictions. And one of those jurisdictions, like the reached that conclusion again was was Moscow PD, and that's that's kind of the standard conclusion reached by most of these smiley in these smiley face killer deaths. So there is so there are a, lot of, a lot of similarities, but again, I think it's more of a copycat than anything else. But uh, that student knew the quadruple homicide victims. A fellow Greek student there at the University of Idaho was at a party with the quadruple homicide victims the night that he disappeared and was later found in the creek. So there is obviously some, some at least some social connections there between the, the, the copycat smiley face killer victim from May of 2022 and the quadruple homicide victims on the University of Idaho campus 
in November of 2022. Again, the, there's actual public photographs on the interwebs where you can see the smiley face killer victim uh, from May photographed in front of the what would later be the murder house there because that was a common social gathering spot for a lot of the Greek students. Uh, party, party house that they would frequent. And it, it didn't just start with these girls that live there now. It had been a Greek society, Greek student party house off campus because it's just off campus. And it had been, it had been within the Greek community renting that house out for the last 25 years. There, there's a long, long running history there. But yeah, the, so the smiley face killer victim, first of his kind in the entire state. So that's it's an outlier. And which again, draws scrutiny for me is into the whole situation again, though. While the victim ends up the same and the case concludes the same, some of the details, you know, there's, to my knowledge, there's been no other smiley face killer victim, for example, that's ever left a, fr- a frat party or a Greek party, you know, and then disappeared and then died. It's always, you know, leaving bars or leaving a, a concert, you know, leaving a, leaving a sporting event. So that in and of itself would be another outlier, the fact that this student left a Greek party and then died. That You know, that's why, again, I suspect it's a more of a copycat situation and given the other details about the Greek life at the university of Idaho and the neighboring Washington state university, five miles down the road and across the border into Washington state, these Greek kids, there they're pretty crafty. So I've seen some of the police, police video footage of responses to loud noise complaints in the Greek houses and stuff like that. And there's been a number of uh, other suspicious deaths in these Greek houses. There's been drug trafficking charges in these Greek houses the Greek society literally ran the University of Idaho president and she was a provost and vice president. She quit her job in a, in a feud, a, long, a long-running feud she had with the, um, with the Greek society there, there on the University of Idaho campus. Not only, you know, they're, they're a crafty bunch there. So when I allege it's a copycat situation, I wouldn't, they're the type of personnel and people, they have a personal apparatus of support as far as no one's going to ask questions or look into this anything. And the students themselves, the Greek students, seem pretty crafty in their response to law enforcement responding to loud noise complaints. No one wants to answer. No one wants to answer any questions. No one knows who lives at houses. You know, no one knows anything. You know, et cetera, et cetera. So they would understand that no one is going to ask any questions. If, for example, this kid that uh, was written off as drowning uh, in the in the creek there, if he fell victim to a, a, a some sort of hazing incident, that you know maybe his his death was not intentional. They were, they hazed the kid to death, and then when no one intended to murder the child, um, that's possible, and and that, that happens in a number of other campuses in Greek life across a number number of other campuses every year. There's victims of uh, hazing rituals that they go wrong, and someone dies, and they'll go dump the body somewhere. That that's happened dozens of times in recent years. So, and, and not at University of Idaho, but within the Greek culture on other campuses. So. You know, I don't think it's, I don't think it's it's past those people at all to someone to be knowledgeable of the smiley face killer victim victimology and criminology of the matter, and then go dump this hazing victim in a creek and call it a day. That's certainly possible, but the fact that he this 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 kid knew and was literally at a party with the the four girls, the three girls in the in the mail that were later the quadruple homicide victims six months later, uh, there seems to be grounds for further scrutiny there, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Another weird thing I had noticed too in regards to uh, Brian Kohlberger, the guy that um, is currently being fingered for the crime, there's been some efforts too to try to link him to Israel Keys, which is interesting. Um, 
he was, of course, the serial killer from that kind of same region of the country. He grew up in Idaho and Washington State region. Um, anyway, this is to just quote briefly here from uh, this article called Chilling Similarities Between Brian Colberger and Israel Keys Rattle Internet by uh, uh, George Tegra, I believe. Um, but anyway, uh, Israel Keys was a serial killer, serial rapist, serial arsonist, bank robber, and abductor who was active in several in several U.S. states. He committed many crimes before he was caught. His M.O. was he would kidnap people in one stage, kill them in another, and dump their bodies in a third state. His final victim was Samantha Cohen, who he abducted from the town he lived in. Keys kept her body in the home depot shed in his driveway. He was caught when he used her credit card, uh, which in itself is ridiculous. But anyway, now there has been speculation on the internet that the and that the Idaho murder incidents were not the first crime committed by the suspect in the case. There have been speculation the Idaho murder suspect Brian Kohlberger followed the same MO as Keyes and has been committing murders for years. People are saying that this is completely possible, that he has been murdering people and getting away with it. When Kohlberger was living in Pennsylvania, he most likely did not commit murders since it was his hometown, but it said that he put 11,000 miles on his car in a very short period of time, and people will wonder if he was traveling to other states to kill people. It's, I don't know, I mean, how credible a lot of this is by trying to bring up the whole issue with Keys, but I mean, he was active in the same kind of area, and that is very interesting that he put on so many miles in his car, but yeah, there just seems like there's something very odd about uh, the suspect in the Idaho case as well, and I mean... Um, it's also weird, too, because Kohlberger actually looks surprisingly like Israeli Keys as well, which is another sort of strange thing about this. Sure. Yeah, Keys is a fellow. I think he, uh, if I'm not mistaken, it's the same guy that killed a, a couple in a home break in home invasion in Essex Junction, Vermont, back in around 2006 or 2007. Might have been. I, I know most of his crimes were more like in the Northwest, but I think he did have a few on the East Coast. But yeah, he would supposedly lead like these murder kits and stuff across the country. It would, yeah, it would be interesting to see if they try to start pinning a lot of additional crimes on Kohlberger across the. Uh, well, that's kind of what I was. Yeah, that's what I was thinking right there. <laughs> you read my mind because because it's not just this comparison you just addressed with Israel Keys. You can find folks out there saying Brian Koberger is exactly like the BTK killer. Brian Koberger is exactly like Ted Bundy because Ted Bundy broke into a sorority house and murdered some girls. You know, and this was not technically a sorority house, but it was an off-campus residence full of sorority girls that lived there. Six of them, in fact, one of which uh, moved out within a month or so of moving in in June of 2022. And again, the other two were allegedly survivors in the home that night. Although that, that even that that aspect is unknown because initially Moscow PD uh, reported that the other two roommates, the other two surviving female uh, roommates of the home, were not even at the home that night. And that was later altered and changed in later uh, press reports saying and they weren't out of town. They were out on the town, as was the late, was the revised report. And, but they were out on the town separate than the other girls was how the story went. So. I have I have deep suspicions that those two girls weren't even in the home that night at all, and one of them is, serves as the primary witness against the suspect, even in the uh, probable cause affidavit, as the primary witness as far as seeing the suspect in the home. But the uh, that fact is is quickly uh, drawn under great scrutiny when there's never any identification of the suspect, no no um, questioning, no interrogation, and no uh, lineup with other similar looking characters. 
as she can only report the man's eyes and eyebrows is what she saw. You know, I question whether or not there was anyone, any the other two girls were in the house at all that night, but you know, nonetheless, it is essentially a sorority house in, in that regard. And I, you know, outside of some of the vague and general uh, similarities between those killings, I, I strongly suspect that Brian Cover has nothing to do with this crime whatsoever. Well, you were kind of hinting at that there was a bit of a suspect history with the house, uh, which had a very interesting address, I'll add. It was 1122 Kings Road, uh, again, in the symbolically charged Moscow, Idaho, where there's a lot of interesting things with this. But anyway. Right. No, it's, you're it? right. It's, it's, and it's, it's the corner of King and Queen Road, actually. Oh, really? There's actually variations between the records of what, what road it actually sits on. It looks like the initial property was a King Road address. But this this home sits on the back side of that parcel of land, and the driveway is on the Queen Road. So, varying reports with even the local government about what the actual address is. Another thing I thought that was interesting too was apparently a, a nearby resident's dog was quote unquote skinned uh, by a human about a couple of weeks before the quadruple homicides. For sure, yeah, that, that was about three miles away from the uh, the murder scene, and uh, I watched an interview with that someone conducted one of the interweb sleuthing you know youtube channels conducted with the with the owner of that dog and went got got an interview knocked on their door got an interview with them sat in their living room discussed it for 20 or 30 minutes the the police couldn't care less about what had occurred i mean in and of itself is skinning a dog and killing a dog a crime yes but there's obviously greater implications to that this is a rural area this person lives three miles from anybody you know about a mile about a mile from anybody three miles from the murder home you know so if someone's coming to your home and skinning your dog, you know, they're, they're, you know, that's, that's a greater sense of alarm, especially when you live in such a secluded region like that. Like who did this? It's not like some random passerby, just someone threw the dog out their window or something, you know, I mean, none of that went on. It's someone it was a very targeted, you know, obviously planned to some degree crime and uh, yeah, Moscow PD couldn't care less. Actually, that actually happened just outside of Moscow's territory. That was actually late tall sheriff's the sheriff's the department couldn't care less all right so what about the history of this sorority because i know you've been kind of hinting that it had a pretty suspect history with activity there beyond oh yeah for sure just the greek life in general yeah for sure on both campuses very suspect very suspect but uniquely to the the the, the murder victims the three girls uh, that were that were murdered on november the early morning hours of, of november 13th they were all members of uh uh well, three three of them, three of the girls were. No, sorry, disregard one. I'm I'm thinking of the total number of girls in the home. So, th- uh, four of the girls in the home out, out of the five that were living there at the time uh, are all members of the Pi Beta Phi sorority, and then one of them was a member of um, Alpha Alpha Pi Alpha Phi um, sorority. And now I, I say that to, to to also qualify that with interviews with, from national news media sources, reports to the. Um, to the on-campus chapters of those sororities had stated that all the murder victims had quit their sororities and they didn't give a precise date. And the national news media as a whole has overlooked this, this, this fact. Um, it's not mentioned that they quit their sororities. If you look in the initial reporting though, to the, in the, on the uh, interviews with the actual sorority chapters, they, they state they hadn't seen these girls in, in a couple of months prior to the murders because they had quit the sorority. So one of them quit in June when they and that's when the girls first moved in that home, and then uh, the other one uh, that was the sixth roommate that was not that was not present at the, the time in November when when the murders occurred. 
and then the the two two surviving roommates they did not quit their sorority. They they're still members of the Pi Beta Phi sorority. So and the, the two sororities on Mos, in Moscow, Idaho, right now, I'm sorry, on the University of Idaho campus in Moscow, Idaho, that are on that are on probation for activities such as drug use is the Alpha Phi and the Pi Beta Phi sorority houses, and that's the two sorority houses where the the victims were members of. And the third one that just recently apparently got off of probation for for uh, similar similarly stated uh, purposes by the university in the in the probation was the Sigma Chi fraternity house, and the male the male the deceased male in the quadruple homicide the boyfriend of one of the girls who was staying at the house that night and apparently frequently stayed at the house from from what reports state he was a member of Sigma Chi, and uh, early on in the investigation Sigma Chi was issued the chapter house there in, at the University of Idaho was issued a gag order by by the judge early on in the investigation long before any suspect was even identified via their, their, their own, their own reports in the, in the uh, arrest affidavit. So this is like just after Thanksgiving timeframe. So this is not even December yet. And, and Brian Koberger didn't become a suspect until November 29th, according to the arrest affidavit publicly, he didn't become a suspect until January, basically when he was arrested. But according to their own arrest affidavit, it was November 29th which again draws great scrutiny uh, you know many degrees of circum circumspicion around a lot of the activities that transpired in the investigation publicly announced by the law enforcement authorities in Idaho in regards to their investigation and the public's assistance that they required that all occurred after November 29th and none of it led would have ever led them to Brian Coburger but according to their own arrest affidavit, Brian Koberger was their man on November 29th. So a lot of questions there. But no, yeah, the fraternity was in around that same date on November 29th that the fraternity Sigma Chi got a, got a gag order. So that's strange. There's a lot of other activities that are strange. Again, the, the Greek. So there's something called the Greek Council. And even watching the the uh, response, the patrolman video, uh, patrol cameras from the patrolman responding to loud noise complaints at the, at the, um, the murder home. You know, months in the months prior. When you're saying Greek, do you mean like, as in like the people associated with the Greek uh, sororities and sororities? Or yeah, the, yeah, like for sure. Yep. Okay. Yeah, no, not, <laughs> yeah, no, no, not ethnic Greeks. And that's what I was getting to address here right now. So, like, okay, there's okay. something called the Greek Council. <laughs> no, good, good call, good call. No, there's something called the Greek Council, and apparently that's some sort of bureaucratic body that that oversees all the sororities and fraternities on on, on campus. Now, some of the, there may be some ethnic Greeks that are part of those sororities and fraternities. Then, if that's the case, they're double Greek in that regard. But I'm just referring to the idea, the fraternities and the sororities. When I say the, the Greeks, the Greek culture of, of the um, of the universities, and yeah, there's something called a Greek council, and the patrolmen that respond to noise complaints have no authority over these students. Again, the students are clearly in, in, in they're playing. I mean, I've been a patrolman before. They're playing. I, I, I've witnessed the similar activities from from college students as well. In, in the past, in years past. And they're clearly playing games with the patrolmen. The patrolmen are basically like, look, we don't want to come back here for a loud noise complaint. We absolutely don't want to file a complaint with the, uh, with the Greek council. Cause apparently, so if the, if the police respond like to this off campus murder home, you know, in these loud noise complaints, if they wanted to have any issues with these, with these students um, in regards to anything, even as simple as a loud noise complaint, they have to arbitrate that through this Greek council. Right. So like they can, I mean, they, they threaten them with like, yeah, we'll issue a citation, but these students know just as well as the police know. And they admit it at various times throughout certain, certain body camera footage 
they both, but you clearly both parties know that nothing's going to come of it. They can, they can play their music as loud as they want. They can party as loud as they want because these cops have to go arbitrate any loud noise complaint through a third party called the Greek council, which makes no sense to me. And certainly I don't even I don't know the, the laws of the state of Idaho well enough to, to, to put my finger on one and say, well, that's not legal because of this. But generally speaking, there's no way that's legal. You know, the due process issues with that alone are innumerable, it seems. But so the, the, in large part, it seems like the Moscow PD have no authority over these children they, you know, within the Greek culture there. And again, there's numerous incidents between the Greek culture and this Greek society uh, feud with the former provost, the head, of, the head of rules and regulations for the university, if you will, in enforcing those. She got ran out. She lost that war. With the Greek with the Greek society there in University of Idaho, and and also in recent years, um, there's been large scale drug trafficking within the Greek society there, uh, across the just across the border into Pullman, Washington, at Washington State University. Now, both of these universities within the Greek societies there they operate very very much the as one organization, if you will, one chapter, right? So they maybe have different chapters at each university. So, for example, there's a Pi Beta Phi chapter at University of Idaho, and there's a Pi Beta Phi chapter at Washington State University, where Koberger was employed as a doctoral student and an intern at the Washington State University Police Department, and where one of the victims, murder victim sisters, is a member of the Pi Beta Phi chapter at Washington State University. Her younger sister was one of the murder victims and a member of the Pi Beta Phi chapter at, at Moscow University, or University of Idaho in Moscow. So these universities share a lot of other uh, assets and resources, not just the relationship between the Greek culture. For example, University of Idaho doesn't have an ROTC program. So all of their ROTC students go to Washington State University ROTC detachment. And there's a lot of other agreements, it seems, that, that the university shared a function on an administrative level. It, the reason I even not, came across the ROTC shared situation between the two universities was because prior to these girls moving into that house, the, the murder victims and the two surviving ones in June of 2022, for the previous 25 or so years, that home had been occupied by Sigma Chi fraternity dudes that lived in that home. And by all reports from townspeople, you know, and students, parents of students, food delivery drivers, et cetera, have all reported that was a known drug distribution home. And it seems that those girls may have inherited at least the you know the surrounding uh, aspects of that situation, and and may may have in fact led to led to their murders, and you know, and I think that that fact alone provides greater scrutiny when such a wide populace of the region seems to understand that to be a to have been a long-standing place where you go purchase drugs. And again, there was a student over in Washington State University just a few years ago, sorority student. She got busted for cocaine trafficking, not cocaine possession, cocaine trafficking. So. It seems to draw, you know, given the environment these Greek students operate in, having seemingly no no rules or authority whatsoever, and given the fact that that location is a known drug house and there's no drug trafficking activity amongst the Greek life there, uh, it seems seems like there's grounds for further inquiry for sure. Yeah, and I was just looking at the locations for some of the um, what is it here, the uh, Alpha Phi one alone, and I mean it's some very interesting schools. A lot, uh, a couple in the University of Wisconsin system, including uh, one at Milwaukee and one at La Crosse. Uh, let's see here, Washington State University and the University of Washington. I know you had already alluded to the former before. 
let's see here there was they were at pretty much all of the major california universities stanford the university of southern california ucla a lot of um you know the major east coast ones like columbia uh the first one was in syracuse syracuse university by the way duke some of these other ones here which are interesting uh, but two that really sort of stood out to me a bit, one was the University of Utah, which is a really interesting campus. Uh, there's one of these at Yale, by the way, uh, which is why I thought it was also interesting that they had one at the University of Utah, because that actually has uh, a chapter of Skull and Bones at it, the University of Utah, uh, which I had some suspicions as to how it uh, got there. It was probably uh, related to a certain hereditary organization you and I fascinated <laughs> with. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, did, I actually did not know there was a there was a chapter. I didn't either until recently. So yeah. That's interesting because, yeah, that, that, I mean, it makes sense given our previous, especially with our previous conversations we've had here on, on, on the Farm Podcast here regarding the 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 Mormon relations to the to the Society of Cincinnati and uh, and as well as the Skull and Bones relations to that to that same that same mix. Yeah, and there's also, like you said, there's uh, one here, obviously, at the University of Idaho. There's also one at uh, the University of Iowa, which I thought was interesting. If, uh, for those of you who listened to the third installment of my Alba course series on David Lynch's Lost Highway, I went into a bit of the, uh, again, really suspect investigation of the uh, disappearance and murder of... Uh, Tibbetts, I can't remember her first name now off the top. Molly Tibbetts. Molly Tibbetts, yes, yes, yes. That happened near the University of Iowa, which also had the same uh, uh, sorority there in it. And also, again, there were indications that that might have been part of a trafficking network and so forth. So, yeah, it's interesting knowing some of this, that this particular university seems to show up at a lot of these um, interesting schools. With, uh... Oh, for sure, and and you mentioned the the potential connections of sex trafficking, and I think I think that that's relevant to this situation in Idaho as well. I don't have any factual basis in which to substantiate that claim. What I can provide is my analysis of the situation to substantiate that claim, and that is looking at the uh, victims, uh, looking at their social media accounts and whatnot. I saw a number of them. They all had boyfriends, they, but they were traveling by themselves, and they were traveling to like Miami, Seattle, Portland, San Diego, Las Vegas during college so not only are they living in an off-campus home well they hadn't been living in the off-campus home that long but not only are they college students and whatnot without you know with part-time jobs at best a couple of them did some of them, a couple of them didn't work at all apparently by all reports in 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 the any available information and data goes um meanwhile they're making these trips and, and literally one of them's boyfriends is right wrote on one of those messages saying like, I wish you would take vacations with me or trips with me. One of the, you know, one of the, some variation of that, of that statement. And I thought, I, I found that very odd. Like, where are they getting this money to, to, to travel? Why are they traveling? Why is one of them's boyfriend saying like, I really wish you traveled with me, making it seem like he's not going on any of these trips that she's got pictures of and he's not in any of the photos. So, and then if you take an analysis of, you know, they're not so much their vehicles, although one of them had a very, you know, the, one of the victims just purchased a brand new Range Rover you know, days before she was murdered, you know, approximately a 30, $32,000 vehicle used Range Rover. No idea where she gets that kind of money, but supposedly she got it herself according to what the reports of her family has, has reported. Nonetheless, if you look at what the, the wardrobe of these girls have and, and whatnot, I mean, they're, you know, they're, they're, they have money. They're, they're not, you know, they're not poor college students. 
So not only does is there is there uh, you know suspicions around the drug trafficking the situations around around this whole situation, but also I would I would impose there should be questions around the the sex trafficking situations. Where are these girls getting this money? They obviously have money given their the clothing and appearances and their lifestyle. Where are they get why are they and why are they traveling by themselves, right? Without their boyfriends. There's certainly some questions to be drawn around that, I think, as well, regarding yeah. the situation. No, certainly. I mean, it does seem like there is some suspect stuff with some of these uh, different sororities and fraternities you've been outlining here, and especially, you know, uh, it's a great place to recruit your uh, your hookers, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, no, absolutely. Bank robbers go to the bank because that's where the money is. You know, you, I mean, you want to well, go, you want to go prostitute some ladies. You, know, you go I mean, find I'm, some attractive ladies. I'm sure you've heard the rumors before, but I mean, there have been allegations for years that I mean, these sororities were, you know, the women from these sororities were at least encouraged to, um, you know, reward some of the athletes and like the football and the basketball programs, so to speak, accompany you know, accompanying them to. Uh, different functions that kind of thing sure uh, yeah so. i'm sure a certain degree that still goes on today yeah 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 so i mean there's a lot of things with this stuff i just think that's that's probably the first step in the doorway right like if that works out well then hey girl we got some we got some other we got another job for you You know what i mean mm-hmm. I, I mean like there's I, I i say this in somewhat jest but you know the, you know because it does seem if you were trying to discuss the that concept with most of the public they would they would laugh at it right that's the reason why i kind of say that jest because there's countless incidents of this occurring. I mean, I can think of one right now. There was a Columbia University fame of, in New York City, a famed uh, Ivy League institution named after the goddess that the people that founded this nation worship. Columbia, you know, Lady Liberty, if you will. And, you know, many other names throughout the, the history of, of time, as I'm sure you know, Stephen, as you pointed out before, the comparison of Columbia to other things. But Columbia, there was a professor there in recent years who was literally running a, a sex trafficking ring, prostituting out the students of Columbia. <laughs> I mean, you know, so it, it, it's not without, you know, it's not it's not setting any precedent. This is the first time it would, would occur. And then University of Idaho has got some really questionable activities with their professors. Back uh, a decade ago, one of the professors murdered a student. And the way that the university treated it before, because the student was like, hey, I think this professor's trying to murder me. I'm having a, she reported to the university, she was having a sexual relationship with a professor. The professor's trying to murder her and they're like, hey, not our problem. You know, you figure it out. And the way they acted during, before, during, and after all of the entire saga where this University of Idaho professor murdered his college student and then supposedly committed suicide himself in the aftermath. You know, within a day or two later, they found, you know they found him in a hotel room dead, like within a, like 36, 48 hours of the young girl's murder. But nonetheless, the way the University of Idaho handled it and the way that the law enforcement handled it is just a mess. I mean, it was just completely preposterous. I mean, it's it's so obscene. It's on it's on the level of smiley the way some smiley face killer killer victims' families are treated. The obscene level in which they treated this girl and her family. Do you um and, and the, the student even tried to report it. And, the professor was even, you know, some of her reports to the university were, were saying this professor had told her he wanted to have an orgy of his female students, and then they would all murder themselves after the, after the orgy in a ritualistic fashion. So it sounds like ritual murder to me, you know. So they have an, there's an incident in Moscow, Idaho, of ritual murder that involved, uh, or at least attempted to, ritual, attempted ritual murder involving a University of Idaho professor who was having a sexual relationship with, I'm sure it wasn't just this one female student. It sounded like there was other ones, at least according to the professor's own statements regarding, you know, the, the alleged orgy he was planning to have that seems to imply there was 
more than one female student involved. Yeah, it definitely seems like a really strange place, uh, which we'll... Uh... Oh, yeah, for sure. Well, okay, so um, okay, one other thing here. Uh, well, okay, let's get into the peace investigation, all the different ways the Moscow PD botched the investigation and the quadruple homicide up to this point. So, I mean, where do we start? Do you want to do it with, like, clean up with the crime scene, perhaps? Yeah, I'll, I'll build up to that point. It, it starts from moment one, because moment one, I mean, the first time I looked at it and saw that police were notified for eight hours, at least eight hours. So there's been, and when I say that, at least eight hours, the police of all, the law enforcement, you know, the authorities, uh, Idaho State Police, the FBI, Moscow PD, Washington State University PD, all working in conjunction. I think they even have Idaho Department of uh, the Game Wardens. They're, you know, they're Game Warden got, uh, officers. They're involved in the uh, investigation somehow, according to the you know official reports of how many, you know, the quantity and of officers involved in which departments they're from. The Fish and Game Department. That's what I can think of. Yeah. So from moment one, though, you know, they have this whole gaggle a mix of, of law enforcement agencies and officers, which you know some people may think, well, they got a bunch of people working on it. That's a great thing. It's tend that tends not to be a great thing. It tends to create a gaggle and, and where nothing gets done and everything gets fucked up pretty quickly. And the result is just one boondoggle, which is what they're dealing with right now. And I, I honestly think the uh, Idaho authorities are, have didn't never never wanted to be in this position whatsoever. I fully believe that they intended Coburger to to cop a plea real quick and you know, to avoid the death penalty and call it a day. And he'd never see one moment in in, in a public courtroom. That being said, he didn't do that. There's some more interesting details there, but that comes later along in the bungled investigation. So apparently no one calls. So four people out of six people in the home that night are murdered. And apparently, according to the coroner's own statements, very gruesome, very bloody. Mind you, no one hears this. And then the roommate, the surviving roommates apparently don't call for eight hours. And to this day, the police have never released a 911 call. And they, they make very ambiguous statements surrounding it. It's like, for example... The 911 call came from a roommate's phone. Well, they don't confirm that it came from a roommate. They simply made public statements saying it came from a roommate's phone. So it makes no sense, you know, in regards to how you would, the smell alone in that home over by that eight hour period of the roommates were in that home. And let's say they were hiding for eight hours, which there's a lot more ins and outs to, to that narrative that don't make any sense whatsoever. Um, but let's say they were hiding in the home. That The, the, the idea that there's two individuals in that home and then the killer cranked up the heat, as the narrative goes, the smell in that home would have been horrendous within an hour, let alone, as the official narrative goes, one of the roommates that was there is the eyewitness. As per the official narrative, if you understood the layout of the home, she could see the, the body that's described in the probable cause affidavit, arrest affidavit. It makes no sense. They, don't, they obviously don't provide you the layout of the home in the affidavit, so there's a lot of those details as it goes on that continue to not make sense, but moment one, no one calls 911 during the murders. The had to have made noise. You, don't, you know, it's it, it's sold in almost like a Hollywood script. It's almost like a Scientologist wrote it. Stephen, if you have seen the film Battlefield Earth or any of the folks of the interwebs are familiar with the film Battlefield Earth, which is supposedly like a Scientology masterpiece, and they must have a different definition of masterpiece than I do because the, the the movie's dog shit. But the plot, the, the whole plot of the, the storyline and the plot, there's just so many gaping holes in the storyline of that film. There's so many gaping holes in the storyline of this narrative that Moscow PD's painted. And one of those gaping holes is you have an eyewitness, and the eyewitness, he also hears statements said from a roommate. It's like, oh, someone needs to help me. And she hears that, doesn't call 911, goes back into her room and hides, as the narrative goes. So if she's hearing these whimpers and statements from her roommates dying in other parts of the home, and she's not hearing the actual murder, 
it's like someone they're trying to paint a narrative like this stealthy individual snuck into the home in the middle of the night and murdered all these kids in their sleep. When in all actuality, it comes out later, they weren't they weren't all sleeping, proven by cell cell phone data records, food orders, and stuff like that. And again, they, the police have had to shift the time of death because of these things. Like, oh, we got to shift the time of death now because initially it was between three and four because they don't really know because no one called nine one one. And then they moved it between four oh five and four twenty because one of the one of the victims was on her phone. She ordered DoorDash in, at four oh five, and she's on her phone to like four twelve. So they they have the murder going down between like precisely between like they narrowed it down like a ten minute time span. But initially it's between three and four in the morning. And again, now it, when the probable cause affidavit, those are the public statements during the investigation and the probable cause affidavit. You know, you can kind of compare what the facts are they're asserting in that versus the, their public statements from law enforcement during the investigation. And again, they don't they don't comport. They do not match up whatsoever because if you compare what they're saying later, you know, there's just all these details regarding this 911 situation that no one's gonna no one's gonna really address. You can't have it both ways. It can't. He can't be a stealthy killer. But then you can also have the eyewitness in the home hearing whimpers and whispers, right? Like, I mean, I mean, he's obviously not. But I mean, he's obviously not a stealthy killer. Kill, killing four people in a matter of ten minutes is what he supposedly did. That's going to be loud. That's not going to be quiet. The the victims, by the own reports of the coroner, put up a fight. And reports that are coming out now in recent days, of, you know, these a hell of a fight. You know, a report from one of the news outlets the other day. Uh, reported to have um, anonymous sources, but at least this anonymous sources finally starts seem to start sounding like it makes more sense. And that is that one of the, uh, the male had his throat slashed girlfriend uh, who was uh, none of the kids were sleeping, obviously in these new, these new anonymous sources reports, which makes a lot of sense given their activity of the food delivery and, and cell phone activity. And again, the, the, the police having to continually shift the time of these things when they should have known the kids didn't die between three and four because there's a 406 delivery from DoorDash, right? And the photographs of the DoorDash food sitting in the home. So these are the things that have caused over the investigation since the non-reporting of 911. The police have been constantly shifting, shifting and shifting with these various details that come out. Again, comparing the probable cause affidavit, it makes no sense. And another element of that is just the suspect alone. So Brian Koberger, according to the probable cause affidavit, is identified on, on November 29th. Yet on December 7th, eight days later, that's the first time anyone in the public hears about the Moscow Police Department searching for a white Elantra automobile as is uh, being wanted for questioning in the quadruple homicide. Well, not only do they, do they already have a guy that they identified eight days earlier who's got this white Elantra, they then announced to the public, we want to hear all tips on a 2011 to 2013 white Elantra. And we want you guys to call in and report these things, you know, immediately. Meanwhile, they already know that the, the suspect has a 2015 Elantra. Eight days prior, they knew that. They identified the Elantra. It's in their probable cause affidavit from November 29th. They identified the Elantra. And they didn't have to do much over there. Again, the Washington State University PD are the ones who identified the suspect initially, not Moscow. And they didn't have to do much. They essentially had to look down the hallway and say, like, hey, does the new intern drive an Elantra? Well, there you go. There's our Elantra. Now, I don't know if that's how it went down, but that's certainly it's certainly possible how it went down. Because after the arrest affidavit, meanwhile, according to the arrest affidavit, they've already identified the suspect, telling everybody they need help. You know, and then you look in the arrest affidavit to see how they kind of cover their ass on that one. And they cover their ass on that one by by doing this and saying, uh, the FBI agent who identified the 2011 2013 Elantra 
reviewed the tape again and was mistaken and changed it to a 2011 to 2016 Elantra. Well, okay. That's funny on its face. And you know, you might be able to be able to get away with that kind of thing in a probable cause affidavit versus your public statements in press releases preceding that probable cause affidavit. But the fact is that the 2015 Elantra that Cobra has is substantially different in appearance than the 2011 to 2013 model they initially reported looking for. For example, the 2011 to 2013 has two headlamps and the 2015 Elantra in possession of the, by the suspect and how they identified them initially is got four headlamps. So in and of itself, and nighttime videos, especially that they have the nighttime video camera footage, either has two headlamps and it has four in the photographs and video that was released. The vehicle has two headlamps. So I don't, and that's, that's the same video that, that this in the probable cause affidavit, the FBI agents reviewing and claiming that he now changed in his mind upon later review and all the evidence, all the, and so that's the, every piece of substantial evidence in the case, it works the same way. So the, the knife sheath that was allegedly found next to the victim's body, um, one of one of the victim's bodies in, in the home that was only found upon a second review of, of body cam footage. So According to the official narrative by the probable cause affidavit put forth by Moscow Police Department there in the Latal County Prosecutor's Office, the detective walked into the crime scene twice, did not see the knife sheath. He then only later saw the knife sheath in photographs and body cam footage from his visit to the crime scene. And this knife sheath is the only piece of physical evidence they have tying Brian Cobra to the crime through quote-unquote touch DNA on the button of the knife sheath. You, seemingly, there'd be blood on there too, especially if it's found right next to a, a victim's body. And seemingly, the detective who's investigating the crime scene should see these items, at least upon his second trip to the crime scene, not his later review of photographs and body cam footage. Now, the other piece of evidence that they see that I'm somewhat being foretelling and in, in, in trying to determine what they're aiming for within their, their own uh, probable cause affidavits for the arrest and for the search warrant of Cobra's apartment. And the affidavit, the surviving roommate eyewitness states that she thought she heard, one of the times that she heard these noises in her home, this is allegedly when the murders were taking place, she thought it was her roommate playing with the dog upstairs. Well, they happened to find quote unquote dog hair in Brian Cobra's apartment, according to the, you know, the, the contents of, of their, uh, of their warrant of the seized items from the warrant. And I just think that seems to be playing into this. Well, she heard dog hair, she heard the guy playing with the dog, and then we found the dog hair in Coburger's apartment. So it must have been Coburger. And it just seems too convenient, you know. And again, convenient in a whole list of other issues with the probable cause affidavit to include, you know, not having the right vehicle, them already identifying the cover eight days before they're telling the public to look for the suspect vehicle. And the phone pings. So they, 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 the affidavit says they're trying to, Coburger is stalking these victims and they use these phone pings. Well, there's only a few towers in Moscow, Idaho, and a few in Pullman. And when one tower gets overloaded with too many users and you try to connect to that tower, it just repeats you on to the next tower that has available space for that user of the, of the cell phone who's trying to connect. So he could be sitting in his house and be connecting to a cell phone tower over in Moscow, Idaho without any issue. And they don't triangulate his position. They're just saying, look, this guy's cell phone hit this tower. Well, yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible. But it, within the own affidavit, it admits that one instance where his phone's hitting the Moscow tower, claiming to be stalking out the victims in the weeks preceding the, 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 the murder, 
they they made an affidavit. He wasn't in Moscow. He was sitting over in Poland at the time. We had him under surveillance. So, uh, you know, the, their, their own their own official narrative within the affidavit doesn't comport whatsoever. If you're using these phone pings to convict the man for stalking the victims, but then on the flip side of it, within the same affidavit, you say, hmm, well, this one time, though, his phone did ping here, but he was over here. It's like plausible deniability. If they were ever to get held accountable for these activities later, they're like, look, we did our best. Were we right on something? Sure. Were we wrong on something? Sure. But you can't hold us accountable. And that's really what I see when I read these affidavits, especially when you see the, the arrest or the search warrant affidavit for uh, Coburgers, Washington State University on, on campus uh, apartment because he was a doctoral student there, uh, TA. Allegedly, after the murders, he went back and taught school for the rest of the semester. doesn't make any sense. No one, no one brought up any issue of his character or behavior during this time. No students, no professors, no anybody. But when they, when they did the search warrant for his apartment there on campus, the affidavit they submitted to the court to get that warrant says, pay no attention to the DNA evidence found on the sheet at the crime scene. So why you would be telling a judge, give us this warrant, but in giving us this warrant, pay no attention to the DNA evidence found on the sheet, the knife sheet at the crime scene. I mean, that should tell anyone who's reading that the, the full story about the DNA evidence of the knife sheet at the crime scene. It's bunk. It's bogus. Whatever the story, the actual story is behind it, they, the prosecutor's office over in Whitman County and just across the border with Pullman, Washington, says they knew better than the requests. They didn't want, they didn't want to be held accountable for it in the future. Is what I, is what I, the way I received it, you know, perceived what they wrote there by telling a judge, hey, look, our strongest piece of physical evidence against this guy, this weird case we have. We had no suspects for weeks that attracted the national attention. The one piece of physical evidence we have against the guy, pay no attention to that, but give us a search warrant anyway. I mean, that should tell anyone the whole story right there. Yeah, it's a uh, it's a, an amazing set of circumstances here. And I mean, certainly there is also this sort of weird ritualistic component to it. I mean, obviously the address of the sorority 1122, for those of you who haven't figured it out, that's uh, the date actually that John F. Kennedy was assassinated on. It's on King's Road, no less, I guess at the intersection of Queens, Moscow, also associated with the dead czars uh, family. So there's um, an especially bloody murder with that. But there's some other really weird stuff about Moscow too that I wanted to kind of get into briefly before we get into FTX and Sam Bankman Freed. Just in general, the whole history of this town is very peculiar. It was settled in 1871 and incorporated in 1887, so it's not even that old to begin with. But it appears that by early 1902, members of the New York-based Ladies Club were already on the scene there. Along with members of the Ladies' Historical Society, they established the Women's Reading Room Society. This group was behind the construction of the town's first library in 1902, and the Pleiades Club was very exclusive. I mean, people like Mark Twain were members of it. Um, so it's it's interesting that this New York-based society of artists and so forth would be uh, establishing a presence in this tiny little town. Uh, you know, I mean, just you know, within two decades or so, it seems like after it was established. Uh, JJ, do you have any thoughts on this? Oh yeah, for sure. The uh, the Pleiades Club is definitely an interesting bunch relative to. Mo I mean, they're national. Like you know, they they kind of operate like these Greek societies do. In fact, the the founding membership of Pleiades Club seems to all have been Greek students, folks. You know, men and women who were 
fraternity and sororities in their in their college life, right? And same goes for the Moscow branch and chapter of this operation because uh, the society there and the Pleiades group there in uh, Moscow was founded by the the founder of University of Idaho's wife and other fa- and, and the wives of other faculty member of members of the initial staff at the University of Idaho. So that group is obviously intertwined with the, with the existence of the university from day one. And it's apparently, from my understanding, that the, the namesake is, is relative to how its origins as well, because the seven women that started it there in Moscow claim to all be, in some, in some metaphorical sense, the uh, the daughter you know the 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 daughters of, of Zeus was I'm sorry Atlantis is Atlantis Zeus Zeus one, one of the, no I guess it would be Zeus it's Greek mythology yeah where am I at um so yeah they correct me if I'm wrong but the the, the seven daughters of, of Zeus were made the the constellation Pleiades is that, is that, is that how the mythology goes Stephen uh, I'm not entirely sure on that um I, I'm always yeah, something something in that regard some somewhere in that mix so yeah so there's there is there is an ancient alien cult aspect if you ask me to, to this whole group the Pleiades group as, as well the guy who founded it too is also quite interesting or uh, not founded it but he was the main guy uh, behind the group for most of its run it apparently allegedly shuttered around like 1935 or something like that but he was a, a gentleman named Howard Newman he was elected president of the club on three separate occasions and was a longtime member of the board of governors and all this other good stuff uh, but he was a textile colorist, very interesting background. He was from Norristown, Pennsylvania, which is right by Philadelphia. I uh, went to Lehigh University, which had a lot of these sororities we've been talking about. Uh, but he made quite a bit of money uh, in chemical work. He eventually became a member of the American Chemical Society and a charter member of the American Institute of Chemists. But he belonged to a lot of other uh, interesting groups as well. Uh, some of them were, you know, I guess what you would expect. One was the Salesman Association of the Synthetic Organic Chemical Manufacturers Associations, Chemist Club, but then also the Delta Chai, the Old Colony of Manhattan's Bay Yacht Club. But possibly most interesting of all, he was a Mason, a Knight Templar, and a Shriner, in addition to being the big guy in the Pleiades Club. So, yeah, he was into a lot of those associations. And in fairness, though, I should. And I, well, I think you get that. I think that's a common commonplace, though, right? Within those kind of yeah, and that, especially that era, that era. Though it is, yeah. I think he was a shriner because that's and especially in this time frame, I believe you would have had to have been like a thirty third degree mason to get in at that point. So um, that was for sure. And I think, but I think even in our modern era, like right now with these with the current, like just the you mentioned, he was a member of there was a what was the fraternity's name? Theta Chi, I believe. They, they, because it all sounds like Fraggle Rock names to me, so I have to like, you have to, <laughs> they don't stick in my head long. Um, yeah, Theta Delta Chi. So like, you know, there's a there, there's a fraternity, right? So he joins that in college. This is more of a lifelong situation, from my understanding, for all these people. And and within those organizations, those people seem to comprise a lot of them Freemasonic lodges and stuff. From you know, for example, you know, the few Masons I know, you know, they're also fraternity members. You know, members of a fraternity, right? So. I don't know how ubiquitous that is, but I assume since I, you know, at, you know, almost if not 100% of the Masons I know are also were fraternity, you know, members of some fraternity from college. I'd say that's probably pretty ubiquitous. Yeah. Anyway, that was one of the really fascinating groups that uh, has been in this town's history. 
In more contemporary times, the town of Moscow has been targeted by an especially militant dominionist cult. It's called Christchurch, and it's headed by an individual called Douglas Wilson. So what's this group's story, JJ? They're an interesting bunch because they kind of, they, they did a Scientology-esque takeover of uh, Moscow, Idaho, whereas around 1980, Scientology um, took over Clearwater, Florida. Yeah, they took over Clearwater, Florida as a base of operations. They did so in very underhanded kind of, uh, you know, sneaky and unscrupulous moves. You know, like an intelligence operation, they set up a bunch of front companies and then they bought a bunch of real estate. And then one day they just turned the sign over on the front company and said, oh, did that say uh, Florida Real Estate Agency? No, no, no. It's really it's the Church of Scientology that owns this building. And then they kind of just said, ta-da, we own most of your city, so we own it. We own your city now. And over time, they, you know, they had paid off politicians and stuff like that. And kind of the tides have turned down there in Clearwater in recent years, so to speak. But yeah, in very similar fashion, this uh, Christchurch cult, they did a similar, similar takeover of Moscow, Idaho, started buying up real estate under front companies and individuals. And then, uh, surprise, it's it's Christchurch, you know, we changed the name on, this, on the door. I mean, I've seen different varying reports of who owns more real estate. It's either the university or Christchurch, but they're on par with one another, of who owns the most real estate in town. And they're both nonprofit, you know, organizations that are not paying taxes on this real estate. So I think that provides another interesting factor in the small town environment of Moscow, Idaho, because who's paying the taxes around there, you know? How's the... Who's funding the operations of the Moscow PD and the city government in whole if most of your real estate is not taxable, right? So I think that draws into question in a lot of the, you know, the impetus behind a lot of the activities that go on in that town. But, you know, just on, on its surface, the, you know, the, the, the money's not coming from the taxpaying public of, of Moscow, Idaho, when you have most of the real estate in town and by nonprofit, non-tax, you know, non-tax organizations at the university and this, this quote-unquote church. Now, uh, they have some extreme Christian beliefs. Uh, when I say extreme, they have their hell-bent, no pun intended, on, on creating their own version of, uh, of a completely Christian city of Moscow, Idaho. And they're very vocal. The cult leader's been very vocal about this. My understanding from locals in the region that that cult, if, you, if, you, if they want to buy some real estate and you go up against them, it's not a good, not not a good outcome for the folks who don't want to sell real estate to this cult. So they seem to they seem to wield an, an unnerving amount of of uh, political weight in that small town atmosphere. Whereas on its surface, they may be with this whole hell bent on turning the entire town Christian mentality. They may you may think that they're anti drug and may not be involved in such drug trafficking operations. I actually have the exact opposite analysis of the situation. I would expect. It's like somebody, it's like when uh, Mike Pence, for example, when he was vice president said, yeah, when there's a whole scandal about, I don't know, who knows what, part of the Me Too movement, I think. So you know, I'm, I'm never in a, in a room with another woman by myself unless my wife's there. You know, just making that statement makes me think that Mike, Mike Pence has got a bunch of skeletons in his closet. What is this dude doing in his, in his you know, free time? So when, when uh, the, the cult, like this seemingly very pernicious uh, Colt that's operating in this small town, you know, boxing people out of real estate, trying to own the town, trying to turn the town into 100% Christian town, whatever whatever that precisely means. I don't know, but that is the man, that is the cult leader's statement. Statement in recent recent months, even, in fact, you know, recent years, he's been making public statements, to, you know, to that regard. Really, really draws into question the whole the whole environment there. But I would, you know, I, I would see this group as Christchurch more aligned with like white supremacist ideals, Um 
in, in within the white white supremacist communities of Idaho, there's a long history of drug trafficking. So I wouldn't count the Christchurch activities out as far as nefarious activities such as that. However, they seem to be heavily involved on on uh, a public facing perspective that they seem to be involved in the production of homeschooling, educational homeschooling uh, materials. Where, where they're importing the, their their ideas and belief systems to, I don't know, but they seem to be heavily involved in, uh, in importing those ideas in, into uh, the minds of young children somewhere. Well, the um, I mean, it's also interesting on a lot of levels with this because, um, as I kind of said before, you know, this is a part of the broader dominionist milieu, which essentially wants to establish a theocracy in the entire United States, and they have you know, over the years tried to take over various uh, local institutions, school boards, things like that. But this is definitely interesting. That, well, no, that's their MO. So you, that's funny you mentioned that, school boards and stuff like that. Yeah, so apparently these folks, the Christchurch folks, their their congregation, their adherents have done some of those similar activities within the schooling there internally to Moscow. So they're not just producing homeschooling materials and selling those, distributing those. They seem to also be focused again, yeah, more focused locally with things like such as like infiltrating the school board stuff like that. Yeah. Well, and Wilson is also interesting because he's been linked to uh, the neo-Confederate uh, supporters as well. He co-authored a book with the League of South co-founder, a minister called J. Stephen Wilkins. It was called Southern Slavery as it was, uh, and he's also uh, been accused of holding views similar to the uh, famous. Uh, Christian Reconstructionist R.D.A. Rush Dooney was also a NATO Confederate and uh, aligned actually briefly with the infamous Order of St. John. They but, seem like a nefarious bunch. These the Order of St. John. Yeah, well, the Dominionist. The more and more network, I'm learning about them, they seem they seem quite uh, quite strange. Well, the Dominionist network itself uh, was a very big part of the uh, you know even establishing the Council for National Policies in the first place and. It probably in that you know instance has been involved in the funding network established by people like the Coors family, the Prince family, the Boss family, and so forth. So this is another component of this because what I can tell, Douglas Wilson seems to be specifically the sort of Calvinist bent within this, and that is what a lot of these uh, families out of the sort of Michigan area that were really along with the Coors family. Again, I'm talking about Prince and the DeVos families were really big on. Uh, in setting up this thing. So the Council for National Policy, that is to say. Sure. I've been trying to find connections to Wilson and a lot of this, but it seems like there's been an effort to cover up his trails and the broader movement, even though, I mean, he's obviously been getting money to do this kind of stuff like take over a town in Moscow, Idaho. He also did the documentary film Collision, where he uh, debated uh, the anti-theist Christopher Hitchens. Uh, which I thought was quite interesting as well. So this guy certainly seems to have been some uh, push to get him into a, uh, a more prominent position, but uh, in the public. Uh, yeah, they definitely have some good financing there. That's a good point that you make because they someone's someone's financing. I mean, selling books is not financing that cult. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I mean, it's it's fascinating that they have ended up in this town, especially the, this you know the history of this town. I mean, the fact that it has you know these Greek sororities that are rather uh, libertine, to put it mildly, and this other kind of <laughs> right. like the Pleiades Club and what have you, of all places, this is like where he would 
decide to try to establish a theocracy so yeah there's a it does it does seem like the polar opposite from a lot of the activities that have been transpiring in that region for some time sure yeah 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 and i was mistaken but though he's presbyterian but yeah this is still just very peculiar um well i mean and and not to overlook the situation this is deep mormon country still you know yeah yeah i mean it wouldn't surprise me if there's some fundamentalist mormon sex active in this area as well oh well i mean i there's there's not only a fundamental fundamental uh mormon sex active in the area in recent years that have hit national attention uh, media attention in fact those some of those incidents included murder you're familiar with the uh chad daybell and uh uh what was his wife slash girlfriend the mother of the children that were murdered lori something oh yeah um, yeah yeah. i think i know what you're talking about so they, they were fundamentalist mormons but daybell was deeply connected to the upper hierarchy of the mormon church yeah he had he had some of his he was a document quote unquote doc you know mormon documentarian you know so he an author of mormon history so he'd written he one of his books is highly regarded by, by the you know the uh the mothership there in salt lake city so he might have been a fundamentalist Mormon, which he was, part of this Idaho sect of this fundamentalist, fundamentalist Mormon sect of, of the of the main mothership out of Salt Lake City. But he was held in high regard with, with again the the upper echelon of the of the uh, the mothership, if you will. There, Idaho is like you know Utah Junior as far as the Mormons go. You know, to the you know equivalent population of the state of Idaho per capita is Mormon as it is. You know, same as same as in Utah. You know, the, the, there's an extension of BYU in in Idaho. It used to be called Riggs College. Now I think it's just Utah BYU Utah or BYU uh, Idaho. I think is what they call it now. So then, you know, there's a large footprint of Mormonism there still today. Well, right. Uh, well, let's start getting into the FTX collapse proper then, and uh, how that sort of links up with the events in Idaho. So first off, JJ, break down the timing of these two incidents for the listeners. Uh, it's you know it's an interesting uh, nexus point of activities, and uh, what what really tripped me off to this even this general concept was I'm a big fan of infamous conspiracy theorists from decades ago, Mae Brussel and her underling, and you know you know she was a mentor to Dave Emery. Some of their work in regards to parapolitics and whatnot, for example, Mae Brussels was doing a radio show out of Carmel, California discussing elements of Watergate a year before Watergate because she was just, she was reading varying accounts and newspapers that she would read every day and seeing that this person was involved in this activity, but they were also involved in this activity that's, you know, not being reported together, but were being reported separately. And she just started connecting the dots and saying, well, you know, there's basically, there's a national news level media story involving this cast of characters and, some of those cast of characters are also involved in this national level news media story over here, then there's more going on. And she was trying, you know, connecting the parapolitical dots of, of those circumstances that she was witnessing and transcribing in her uh, radio programs. And again, she was doing brilliant work because again, she proved to be correct and was, was essentially talking about elements of, of water, what would later become the Watergate scandal. Well, a year, a year in advance of the Watergate scandal. So in that same regard, I, you know, as, as I was doing an analysis of a lot of the circumstances surrounding the Greek life there in Moscow and Pol- Idaho and Poland, Washington, which again are five miles apart. And essentially, again, not only do the universities operate the same, I mean, the cities a lot of times operate the same. It looks like they don't have like, you know, one store in Pullman and another some store of the same chain in, 
in Moscow, you know, sometimes you have to go over to, to Moscow or sometimes you have to go over to Pullman to get certain stores and whatnot. So they, they operate as a, as a, you know, a one, one metropolitan area. So when you see that going on and, and you see all the drug trafficking that's been going on in these Greek societies and the drug trafficking that seems to be surrounding the, the quadruple homicide, not only the victims, but a number of the victims' families uh, are deeply involved in drug trafficking charges over years past, including one of the victims' mothers, who's recently been, been shown on national news media, even though she's wanted by numer- two, two different counties for arrest warrants in the state of Idaho for drug charges. In August of 2022, she had drug trafficking charges out of the state of Washington for heroin and meth. Uh, maybe I'm making up the meth part. Definitely heroin on the trafficking charges out of Nez Pierce County, uh, Washington, in August of 2022. So proceeding the murders. So there's so obviously the, the victims have connections to drug trafficking. Once you identify that, you identify the Greek life that they that they're participating in. And the university has got connections to, to drug trafficking, cocaine trafficking specifically of the same. The same sorority, but the sorority over, uh, you know, over in Pullman, the Alpha Phi sorority, which is one of the victim sororities there in Moscow. You know, looking at those circumstances, thinking, well, there's probably they, if they're if they're doing drug trafficking here, they got to be laundering the money somewhere. So that was a question mark in my head. But then I saw that FTX had purchased a small rural bank 30 miles north of both universities, approximately a 45 minute drive from either location, and. I thought, why did the cryptocurrency folks that are the D- that are the heart of this this DNC financing and fundraising s- scandal, along with Ukraine and money laundering through Ukraine with U.S. taxpayer dollars, et cetera, and a number of other uh, unscrupulous activities, why are they purchasing this random bank, a 135-year-old bank that opened the same year that Moscow, Idaho was founded? You know, um, why are they purchasing this bank? It makes no sense. And the, and the entire business model was about this situation was they were starting a new currency exchange where you would buy this crypto coin and it would, but the crypto coin itself was backed by us dollars, which that seems to be counterproductive to what the cryptocurrency market was trying to accomplish as a goal. Uh, and those would be competing uh, currencies, not you don't back one with the other. So on its face, it made no sense to me. And Bankman Freed went into business with the guy who created Inspector Gadget, of all people. He owned, he owns this other this thing called Tether, Tether Coin, which is tethering your crypto coin to an actual one for one U.S. dollar backed coin. Again, on its face, it seems to make no sense. But that, that was their operation there out of the small bank called Farmington State Bank, which they changed to Moonstone Bank after they purchased it in 2020. It seems like a strange name, Moonstone Bank. It seems very occultish, if you ask me. Or you know, folks into the occult would name their bank Moonstone Bank, is what I'm saying. All of this came to light because on November 11th, 2022, FTX filed for bankruptcy in the state of Delaware, and thereby all this information became public record. And in those in that bankruptcy filing, and in that bankruptcy filing, it has a loan to this fellow who owns the Tether Coin operation, and they went in business. FTX was the financiers financing things according to their bankruptcy documents. If you just look at the numbers. Financing things with money that wasn't theirs, it was part of an exchange that set, was supposed to be sitting in people's wallets, the crypto wallets on the exchange. He's using to finance things like purchasing this bank and doing weird things about a one-for-one tethering to the crypto coin to a U.S. dollar, which, again, doesn't make any sense on its face from, from the economic market level of, the, of their operation. Again, they bought a World Bank that employed three people previously to, I believe, uh, I think I saw a number of 48 
on their, some of their filings as far, as far as current employees go. Bought it in 2020 with a guy who, who uh, invented the cartoon Inspector Gadget and produced it for, for television. Their documents don't make any sense. So let's say, let's say they are doing this one-for-one one crypto exchange. None of the filings of the FDIC has on file or the bankruptcy filings for this bank, Farrington State Bank, now Moonstone Bank. None of it has anything to do with crypto stuff. What it does have, seem to have to do with is money laundering. Because, for example, the bank in the 10 years previous to, um, so from 2020, 2011 to 2021, I believe were the exact dates, the decade there, uh, this bank had, had taken in, according to the FDIC, the regulators of, of, of uh, institutional banks in, the, in, this, in this country, they say that they had $10 million in total deposits over a decade period. However, when FTX filed bankruptcy in, in uh, you know, 2022, so just a, about a year after those reporting you know, timeframes of their total deposits, they had $21.7 million. I'm sorry, this actually, this number is from January 2022, not November, 20, January 2023, not November 2022. Um, this came after the filing. Um, in January 2023, they got assets seized from Moonstone Bank by the Department of Justice, I think totaling $50 million. And of that $50 million, it was apparently 80% or something like that of the bank's assets. And the bank's assets alone had like an uh, income of like uh, 21.7 in the previous quarter, $21.7 million in the previous quarter ending 2022. Whereas again, the, de- the decade previous to that, they only had $10 million total across the decade. So obviously, there's a lot of suspicious activity going in and around this now Moonstone Bank located immediately uh, in the vicinity of both both these universities that they're involved in this investigation of the quadruple homicide of the four college students from University of Idaho and employed the suspect in the murders as a student teacher and doctoral student at the and intern at the Washington State University Police Department as a doctoral student at Washington State University. So, and again, the November 11th filing of FTX, it seems suspicious given the time of the murders, which was within 36 hours of the filing of the FTX's bankruptcy. Does it seem to indicate a direct correlation? No, but it could seem to indicate some sort of cleanup operation of, hey, we've been doing a lot of shady shit in this region using this bank as a money laundering. It may have been two totally different operations. They're like, hey, you guys are a new money laundering operation in town? That's fantastic. We need new money launderers. It could have just been a new relationship. But whatever it was, it seems to me that there's likely some sort of connected cleanup operation that led to the murder of these young girls who, again, had all quit their sororities, were all leaving campus, and none of that fa- none of those facts are reported in the media, the fact that these girls had quit their sororities and leaving campus. The media only reports one of the three girls. They were murdered, was leaving campus, and they quit, you know, quit their sororities. Given the time frame of activities and, the, you know, the close nature of geographically speaking, and these two seemingly separate national news-level media events, you know, may in fact, under May, you know, May Brussels theory and Dave Emery's work, may in fact be part of the same, the same uh, creature. Yeah, and then the other thing to me that's just so strange about all of this is this Brian Kohlberger kid, who I agree with you, I mean, does not seem like he was the actual murderer, but there's just so much strange stuff about him. In fact, I think on top of, you know, everything else, like once it starts to get out that 
he might be a suspect. I believe his dad flies up there and they like literally drive all the way across the country from Washington straight back to Pennsylvania. And um the area was sold. No, you're 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 spot on, Stephen. That's definitely how it was sold. However, the facts and details of the circumstances as stated in the probable cause arrest affidavit, he had no idea he was a suspect. Right. And you know what I mean? Yeah. And like, and, and when they're trying to when they're trying to prosecute the man for other crimes in other states and saying he's some sort of serial killer because he has people have looked up his Carfax data from his VIN number and realized he's got all these strange mileage. The guy drove. I mean, there's there's been email communications with the and Washington State University's police department is got all sorts of weird activity with sex scandals and credit card fraud scandals in recent years. Uh, I'm sorry, that was the Pullman, Washington. And that was the police chief quit. And then he got hired a few months later as the Washington State University police chief. So there's a lot of circumstances surrounding that situation over there that maybe they're, they're certainly relative to the circumstances in the quadruple homicide and the investigation, but not necessarily directly relative to what we're talking about today. But yeah, the, um, the nonetheless, whole, the, the whole region go ahead. that he's from too in Pennsylvania is very interesting. I believe it was like Albrightville, Pennsylvania or something, which is near the Poconos. But it's just so strange, especially when you look at the ties to this weird, you know, Christchurch, Douglas Wilson thing in Moscow, Idaho proper, the whole region. And then the fact that this guy is living or comes from this area in Pennsylvania with his family that's right there, you know, amongst like some of these major you know, right wing extremist cults, essentially. Oh, for sure. No, and, I think you bring up a good point. I think there's certainly grounds for, for further you know research in those departments because I'll just ask you this question. How did he get there, right? How did he get selected? So there's only like one at most, from what I could tell, two doctoral positions on there at the university within criminal justice at the Washington State University, right? So how did he get there, right? Uh, he got and went through an interview process, an application process, and was selected, right? He was selected into that position. But the question that bears is why was he selected, right? Is he selected because he's part of some other kind of cult group? that may be in league with the cold group out there through right wing or white supremacist ideals. And, and that's how you know, it's a more of a larger network in that regard. It's possible. I think sure. Especially as you pointed out where, where he, he comes from, where he grew up there in Pennsylvania is deeply rooted in a very similar kind of right wing, you know, situations. As far as the unification church goes, if I'm not mistaken. That's, that was established basically on record. I think it's fairly well established that, uh, that was a CIA operation that George Bush, number one, had basically, you know, had, had installed Sung Young Moon into that into that role, if you will. No, it was much before uh, George Bush's time. I mean, the the church oh, was it was well, so, like, in the early fifties, but yeah, it was. So they had a tight relationship before then. So that Bush and Moon just ca carried it on. Well, it was actually it was really much closer to some of the Japanese power brokers. There were actually a lot of very close ties to the Yakuza, but also kind of like the whole, uh, you know, faction of military officers around Douglas MacArthur, a lot of those. Well, that's interesting because most Koreans and Japanese do not like each other. Yeah, I know. It was really funny. But I mean, see, this is the other thing, too, about the Unification Church that's really interesting in this regard, because specifically the Japanese they were getting uh, support from, I mean, were, again, mostly Yakuza dons. I mean, uh, so, so, gosh, what was his name? Um, oh, Kahneman, I know, was one of them. Yoshimi Kahneman, I believe. And then, um, gosh, I never remember the other guy's name. But I mean, these were 
like the top yakuza bosses for many so you're thinking the ak-47 celebrations are more yakuza based than like wahhabi based <laughs> yeah most likely because i mean shaman's brother actually owns like an arms company called uh arms right that's what it's called uh, which i nice that's i'm not familiar with it but it sounds interesting yeah i mean I like what you're saying yeah so i mean i mean if, if these cults are operating in that area of pennsylvania i mean they're operating in an environment that's accepting this right like so you know their adherents their membership are going to be you know largely living in that same region so i think it's certainly yeah it's certainly possible that uh the suspects in the idaho quadruple homicides has a history of his family maybe coming from from that kind of kind of activity well, I mean, it's interesting with the geopolitical implications of some of this, too. I mean, obviously, Sam Bankman-Fried was a supporter of uh, Joe Biden. Uh, converse to the tune of tens of millions of dollars, right? I mean, like we're talking yeah. between Biden and the congressional donations. I think we're talking somewhere upwards of $80 million. But I mean, conversely, I would imagine a lot of the characters we've been describing. I mean, this Christchurch guy around Douglas Wilson. I mean, certainly Sean Moon. Uh, and I would imagine Gullen and a lot of these other guys are probably Trump, you know, supporters, supporters of the alt-right. I mean, a lot of these other groups. So, I mean, another kind of aspect about this is, you know, you almost sort of wonder about the geopolitical intrigues at play. I mean, the FTX thing. Uh, oh, absolutely. Now, you know, I mean, it's a huge embarrassment for Biden and, I mean, a large extent, many uh, prominent Democrats and then um you know you have these sudden murders uh, occur and then the suspect that they throw up this Kohlberger guy i mean is in a lot of these areas that could connect it to some of these right-wing groups so you almost sort of wonder if it's like a double blackmail or something like that no you're spot on that's exactly what i'm thinking like this guy he's, he's known to the washington state university police department who identified him as the number one suspect again no one cared about doing any witness lineups there was no interrogation there was no statements it was, here's our guy, Brian Koberger. And we have almost no evidence to support this, but here's our guy, Brian Koberger. And it's not like he was a stranger to them because he was an intern. And with the mileage to his car, he drove out there in April of last year, according to email traffic he had with the, uh, that's been released publicly that he had with the Washington State University PD chief, who again is the chief who quit under very suspicious circumstances surrounding credit card frauds and weird sexual scandals at Pullman, Washington, the city police, and the university was like, hey, you did an awesome job at those scandals. We want you to come be our police chief. And again, uh, Koberger publicly is shown to have met with this guy and drove out there, it seems, according to the email traffic, they met in person. So mileage on his car would substantially drove out there from Pennsylvania. I mean, that's reasonable to do. You're not going to do a doctoral student interview over the phone. Most of the time, they want to see you in person, you know, so it all makes sense. The strangest thing about the whole narrative is, like, why the heck did his dad come out there and then drive back with him, especially since he clearly seems to have made this drive by himself, I mean, a time or two. I mean, assuming everything was just only up and up with all those miles he put in there. Well, so the story of the narrative given by his family is the weather, and, and I can attest to that. I've driven from Montana, for example, to the East Coast and back numerous times in the winter. And I was stationed in Montana years ago. It, that's not a drive you want to take, you know. Yeah, and they, they want to crit- he's been he's been lambasted in the media like oh he drove to Colorado and the FBI lost him for 14 hours and the FBI was like no we didn't we didn't lose him we weren't the FBI was like we weren't even tracking him because then it was sold that he got these body cam footage of him and his dad in the car going back across the states we're saying like oh they, the FBI told the Indiana State Police to pull him over so they could look at his hands and see if he had any scars 
They had weeks to do that. He was on campus for over two weeks after they identified him as the number one and only suspect in the murder, according to their own probable cause, the rest of David, and they didn't do any interrogations. They didn't do any suspect lineups. They didn't question him whatsoever, and they didn't check for his hands while he's going and teaching courses every day at Washington State University. That's preposterous. But, yeah, so they make it sound like he's just like, oh, he's, he, he's evading law enforcement. He went, oh, we found him on a license plate reader in Colorado. Well, yeah, yeah. He wanted to avoid the awful road conditions in North and South Dakota, which are the only way to traverse the United States to the north end. You're going through North or South Dakota, and I can tell you, you don't want to be in either one of those states in the middle of a winter storm, which was, in fact, going on at the time, a winter storm. The, the much more advisable route is to go down. I mean, you're still going to encounter snow through Nebraska and Colorado and Iowa, places like that, but it's not nearly as aggressive, and the wind isn't nearly as aggressive as you find in North Dakota and South Dakota route. So that all makes sense to me, you know. And what doesn't make sense is any of the narrative that gets spun around it. Because, again, the media was like, oh, the FBI, they, they lost it for 14 hours. Like, they, then the FBI publicly states, no, we didn't. The media's like, oh, they, the, the FBI had him pulled over because he's, he's, he's running away. He's not running away. He finished out the semester. And it seems to me that his father came out to drive back with him, you know, because of the awful road conditions. And, you know, and they, they get, again, they get bad in Nebraska. I was driving from uh, out west through Nebraska one, one time through the winter, and they just, you know, I was kind of shocked to see it, you know, but the Nebraska State Police had just, they had like a, a big drop arm across the highway, and the Nebraska State State Patrolman sitting there saying, we've closed the highway for the night. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. It was like four in the afternoon. I mean, it was bad. I didn't know how bad it was. The next day I saw how bad it was. It was pretty bad. It made sense to me that they shut it down, but, you know, if folks who have not driven through there and experienced that may not expect that. And the media is happy to lambast the uh, suspect who's not been convicted of any crimes and is innocent until proven guilty of being guilty somehow because he's doing these things. The other thing that they're trying to seem seemingly trying to do with relative to his car is say, like, Oh, well, he changed the license plate. So they couldn't find it. He changed the license plate. Cause if you look up his car through any kind of car fracks or anything like that, it's going to show you that his Pennsylvania registration expired on November 30th. So him changing his license plate to a Washington residency where he's, where in fact it's where he moved in August of 2022 makes a lot of sense, but the media reports it as, Oh, the guy's trying to confuse law enforcement. He only had one plate on his car. Now he's got two and it's from a different state registration now, no, but not, not, not a damn thing of that's accurate. Just part of the propaganda machine against the guy, which again, reeks of OJ Simpson style case propaganda involves the same, literally the same characters, including the the white supremacist, quote unquote. Uh, I think what was his code name, and, and some some reports that came up in the O.J. Simpson case, the the dark German, I believe, who was implementing some white supremacist, some nationwide white supremacist plans that were surrounding the O.J. Simpson case, and that's Mark Furman. Mark Furman's lambasting Coburg on the media almost nightly, along with alongside O.J. Simpson prosecutor Marsha Clark. They're part of the talking heads across the. Coburger did it campaign going on right now. And of course, Furman lives in Idaho and he's connected to a white supremacist group out of Sandpoint, Idaho. And it's been convicted of bank robberies, assassinations, drug distribution. So, and Mark Furman himself perjured himself in the OJ Simpson case. Why anyone's going to ask a man who did, who's literally guilty of perjury in a, in a homicide case that he was a detective on and by all available evidence, planted a lot of the evidence and et cetera. And why anyone would ask like, Hey, can you provide analysis on this other murder case? You guys, you did so great Furman on this, on the OJ case. 
perjuring yourself, planting the evidence, being a white supremacist. We need you to come tell us about this this Idaho quadruple homicide. It just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Oh, the same could be said about everything else surrounding this case and really the FTX collapse as well. That's true. And then one, one other note, just real quick, with the comparative analysis between the OJ case and the Idaho 4 quadruple homicide, both murders were uh, conducted using a large hunting-style knife. The knife was never located. The bloody clothes of the assailant was never located in either, either case. In large part, the, the case, uh, both cases, the OJ case and the Idaho 4 case, they swing upon very, very questionable pieces of physical evidence. For example, the OJ case was a few specks of blood and then a, a bloody glove with a victim's blood on it found on his estate, which was later argued to be again, pretty, pretty, pretty well argued to be planted by Mark Furman in, in the uh, in the course of the trial. Now, again, the stuff didn't get reported by the media, but you know a lot of the stuff in the trial clearly showed O.J. Simpson had nothing to do with those murders. And the same here with Koberger, if you were to apply a lot of the same timeline of events versus what the police say the timeline is versus their own evidence, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Again, Koberger is clearly not, not, the, not the, the culprit here. But again, it, his case is contingent upon, much like O.J. Simpson's also, besides the small amount of DNA, which a small amount of DNA when there should be a vast amount of DNA evidence. I mean, these are both bloody murder scenes, right? O.J. and the Idaho situation. So there should be a vast amount of DNA evidence. And when there's only a minute amount of DNA evidence, and that DNA evidence is very questionable and has circumspect uh, origin stories for both of them, you know, he draws a lot of questions and scrutiny about what's really going on here. But both cases also were contingent upon a, a footprint. You know, granted, uh, there was other footprints of the OJ scene. The, the OJ scene was like, they, but they only focused on, you know, a couple of footprints. Uh, one of the footprints was on the envelope with the glasses that Ron Goldman brought Nicole Brown Simpson, which is why he was there that night, supposedly. Um, there's the envelope with the with the with Nicole Brown Simpson's mother's eyeglass sitting in it next to her body. And there was a bloody shoe print on on the on the envelope, and the FBI said, No, 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 no. That's not a shoe print. Those are just vertical lines. Vertical lines of what? You know, there's blood on a blood print on the envelope, vertical lines of what if it's not a shoe print, FBI. Again, they're, they're the Federal Bureau of Uninvestigating Things. But you look at the Idaho case, they found a latent shoe print, meaning it wasn't visible to the human eye, but after using chemicals and some powder, we discovered this shoe print. It's not a bloody shoe print. It's just a shoe print on the home of, of leaving, the, leaving the home inside the, the, murder, the murder scene there in Idaho. Now, the, it's allegedly a van shoe, and this, is, this was mentioned in the search warrant of Koberger's apartment in his dorm there on apartment on WSU campus. They didn't find a, a shoe and all the, the girls that lived in the actual murder home in, in different photographs are all wearing van shoes at certain points in time. So if all the people in the home wear van shoes, the police aren't even trying to identify the size of the shoe. They're like, yeah, we got one shoe print and that's no blood, not bloody. And we found it through a lot of chemical processes and research into the trying to find some physical evidence here. Again, it's a small amount of evidence when there should be a vast amount of evidence, right? There's no blood leaving the scene whatsoever. The, scene, the entire scene then at that point, if there's no blood in or out from any of the entries or access points, thereby you can't identify the ingress or egress of the assailant from the, from the actual crime scene. That means that the crime scene had been cleaned up. And if the crime scene had been cleaned up and you're finding these other latent shoe prints, I mean, how long has that shoe print been there? Who put that shoe print there? Why aren't you releasing the sites of this shoe print? And the same stuff went down in the OJ case. So you have 
a lot of the same tactics, you know, the similar weapon of choice, you know, the investigations are going very similar. The personalities and characters involved in both cases are the same people. It really makes you wonder what's going on. And if there aren't bigger connections to more issues like the FTX scandal, which again is unfolding immediately in the vicinity of both these universities for no explicable reason in a small rural bank. If you look up the bank online to see what the building looks like, it looks more like a rape shack than it does a bank. And there's no sign on the building even. So it really makes you wonder what's going on in, in that region for sure. Absolutely. And we'll definitely have to have you back here soon. Do I go over the OJ case? There's uh, definitely a lot of things in that that I'm hoping to take a more in-depth look at in the future. So something to look yeah, for. Absolutely. I'm happy to come back. Thanks for having, having me on for this discussion, Stephen. I definitely enjoyed it. And there's definitely a lot to be seen for more to come on, on both the FTX story and the uh, the homicide investigation of those young college students. Absolutely. Yeah. We'll just have to see how weird it keeps going from here. <laughs> I'm sure with a name like Moonstone Bank, I'm sure it's going to get weird. Golden brown texture like sun lays me down with my mind. She runs throughout the night. No need to fight. Never a frown with golden brown. Every time, just like the last, on her ship, tied to the mast, two distant lands, takes both my hands, never a frown.